0: humans are the most meaning-seeking creatures on earth. That's according to our guest today, a return guest, Green Beret retired Lieutenant Colonel Scott Mann. He's going to teach us how to find that meaning and how do we bring that meaning into a passion and bring it into our communities and into our health and fitness and our leadership. You are a warrior. What kind of vehicle you are the very best your nation has to offer. Oh. Multiple shots, They're asking you. To leave. Five. We need a bear cat. It's up to us. For 133. I need somebody that's got a visual where the shooter is. You must be sound in mind, body, and spirit. Where's the officer down? I have a rescue helicopter that wants to land and help. This is the podcast that will make you the one. Copy running Eastbound. The one that will bring everyone back. I believe we have shot, fired, shot, fired. Give me up now. Because no one else is calling. I have an officer shot, an officer shot, 100 block of e Street. Suspect is down, suspect is down. This is The Squad Room. Uh, hello everybody, welcome to another episode of The Squad Room, the podcast about navigating the challenging terrain of our demanding careers as law enforcement professionals. My name is Garrett Teslaw. I'm an active duty sergeant for a sheriff's office in Southern California, and I'm here to help you learn tactics and strategies for taking care of yourself, your family, and your community. If this is your first time listening to the show, thanks for stopping by and checking us out, and I encourage you to do two things. First is, if you liked the episode today, don't forget to subscribe to the show on the player of your choice. But also, second, go back and check out some of our amazing guests on other episodes, like Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman on episode 62. Or uh, cardiologist Dr. John Scheinberg on episode 35 or DEA chief James Capra on uh, episode 85 or Ryan Mickler from Order of Man on number 67. I often get an email saying, hey, man, it would be great if you had so-and-so as a guest. And uh, I'd say, cool. Well, check out. As a matter of fact, they were. They were a guest on the show. So we have a lot of great guests we've had on. We have a lot more coming up. Uh, but check those out. And we have some return guests, too, coming up. Before we get to the end, we want to remind you that you can do uh, get more information on this episode, including the show notes and links to things we talk about in this show by going to thesquadroom.net. And of course, you can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and follow me on Instagram and Twitter at The Squadroom. I want to also thank Ranger Up Clothing uh, and rangerup.com for their support of the show. If you like Ranger Up t-shirts as much as I do, you can get 10% off your order by using the code thesquadroom. My guest today is uh, one of my favorite people on earth, and I, I'm not saying that lightly. Um, a man who could not be more genuine, uh, who is not could not be more giving of his own experiences than himself, and and someone who I've gotten to know, uh, I'd say, rather well over the last couple of years. And last year, uh, we, we got introduced by a mutual friend, and then um, we sort of seemed to orbit the same world of a couple different people of friends and uh, got to meet real quick and then he was on the show and then I got to spend some time with him uh, at his home in Tampa uh, some time back and we've kept in touch. And uh, a true leader, Lieutenant Colonel Scott Mann, uh, uh, colonel in the Special Forces, the Green Berets, and uh, also the author of a book called Game Changers, uh, going local to fight violent extremism, and also now a playwright. He is writing and performing a play that I just can't be more impressed with uh, his willingness to be creative and push himself out there and do these things that you don't typically associate with someone who is very much in the warrior class. So uh, you can follow him and everything like that. Just go to the squadron.net and get uh, links to all of his socials and uh, listen to this episode. We talk a lot about legacy, about building our values and identifying our values. Uh, how we want to leave the world a better place and what we can learn from his work in hostile terrains and the desire for all of us to connect uh, and be those meaning-seeking creatures. All right, here we are with Scott Mann. Scott, welcome back to the show.
1: Hey, Garrett. Thanks for having me on, man. Good to be here. It seems like it's been like, you know, a couple of days, but it's it's been a while.
0: It has been a while, yeah. Over that, and a lot has happened in the last time since the last time we spoke, at least on record, uh, on this Mm -hmm. recording. And uh, but since the time that we last spoke, I've been able to spend some actual time with you face to face and get to know you better, and um, and and really dive into this the work you're doing. And I think it just it's so important, and it connects so directly with law enforcement that I could. We could probably do a whole series, and I know you haven't Hmm. got the time for that, but it just, its it always, every time you talk, it's something comes back to how we can be better in our jobs in law enforcement, how we can be better leaders in our family and communities. I mean, just, so I've been excited to have the conversation as a short version of that. So the last time we talked, we talked about leaving tracks and how we need to create our legacy by working towards something that's bigger than ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. I've I've been thinking about this a lot lately. But also about how, how we begin that and I think how, how to develop a code of conduct or a personal mission statement or as I like to call it, an oath. Yeah. And, and to do that, we have to identify, of course, what our values are, you know, personally held beliefs and what's important to us. So I guess my first question is, Scott, is I know you well enough to know that there are some things that are more valuable to you and more highly ranked than other things. But what was the process you used or do you use to identify what those values are?
1: Wow, great question. And, you know, before I, before I riff on that, I mean, thanks to you and all of your brothers and sisters in law enforcement and their families, uh, for what you all do. I don't think we say it enough to you. And, um, you know, we're always thanking troops for their service, but I wish we'd spend half that time thanking you guys for what you do, um, sure. in a daily, on a daily basis. Cause it's just, it's just amazing. And, uh, but you know, thinking about the so my value set and how I arrived at it, you know, the first thing I would say is I'm sure like a lot of us, you know, my parents instilled a lot of that in me. And and I think that does have a lot, you know, our our you know, where we come from can can have a lot to do, at least with the initial initial value set. And I was blessed uh with a dad who's still with us and who just I mean and who you know is is my dad Rex. He he is just, you know, he's one of the most generous uh, servant leaders I've ever known, and and so from the time I can remember, you know, long walks in the woods, and uh, you know him in his fire suit with smoke all over his face coming off a wildfire, you know, talking to me about you know giving back, making a difference bigger than yourself, punching above your weight as he called it, um, and you know leaving tracks, and 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 so I was blessed to have that kind of instilled in me. And then to go right into a, a, a profession that required that in spades, which was special forces, I mean, where literally our motto is free the oppressed. And so I, once again, I was blessed to be mentored by these amazing career senior sergeants, mostly, mm-hmm. who had spent their entire life working in these you know, uh, downtrodden, uh, underdeveloped, at-risk communities, and they – shaped how I thought about the world in so many ways. So, you know, I don't know that I could take credit for hardly any of it, man, to be quite honest with you. I was just gifted with these amazing mentors who showed me what it looks like when you do it. And I fell in love with it. I I just, there's such a, you know, such a return on it emotionally uh, that I, I don't know, I just somewhere along the line, I fell in love with those values and and I try to still stick with them.
0: So you're the parent to two, uh, some, or some growing boys, some me- three. Yeah, three, three boys and, yeah. um, who are quickly becoming young men, right. And, yeah. and, and mm-hmm. about to go out into the world on their own. How, or what have you done as a parent myself? This is something I, I obsess over. How have you taken those lessons from your dad, taken those lessons from special forces, but then brought them into your home?
1: Yeah, no, I think that's something incumbent on all of us, you know, when I when I talk about rooftop leadership, you know, I I took that methodology or that analogy from Green Beret teams who would inspire villagers to one by one climb up on the rooftop and defend their homes um not because they had to but because they chose to. So, it implied trust, relationships, human connection, leading by example and and this willingness to take a stand in the face of Danger and risk and high stakes, even when others don't follow you in the beginning. And as I come home from six years of retirement now from from combat and from special forces, I I find it necessary for me to share those lessons, not just with my boys, but with all of the people that I come in contact with who are willing to listen in particular, my boys, the way my wife and I, and by the way, I love the picture of your son who was, it would think it was his first baseball game. And I you think your quote was, I don't know who's more excited.
0: Yeah.
1: And I, I remember it like it was yesterday. And, you know, my boys now are 20. One of them is about to become an infantry Lieutenant. Uh, the other one is 18. He's Cooper. He wants to go in the FBI. And then my youngest son, Braden, he's 15. He wants to play for the Yankees. Uh, so you know they're all but all of them hopefully what what i believe they share in common is they are protectors they are you know they are gentlemen and they are good citizens you know good leaders and they look out for the little guy the little girl that that can't stand up for themselves that's what i tried to impart upon them above all else is that we look out for the people that can't look out for themselves and that we are protectors and we are you know we are leaders always servant leaders and I started teaching them that at a very, very young age. You know, I'm one of these old school, you know, Southerners. I, my my boys, the first words out of their mouth was sir and ma'am. <laughs> um And I just think that it's important to be respectable and relatable. And, and, you know, most of the values, Garrett, that have defined this country, in my opinion, and made us what we are, I think are still relevant. And so just trying to teach what my father taught me about respect, uh, playing a bigger game, you know, never quitting, um, and just using every moment possible, especially struggle, as a coachable moment.
0: Mm. Yeah, I like that. You know, it seems one of the biggest challenges in all of this is developing a congruency between our values, uh, the things we espouse, and 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 our beliefs and our actions. You know, we yeah. this the saying we judge ourselves on our intent and we judge others on their actions. What are some of the things you do to remain self aware to kind of to kind of keep yourself in check, you know, the army calls it a a hot wash or an after action. We call it a debrief, but do you ever pause uh, after important moments and just evaluate an event, an operation a day, an interaction with your kids? And what are the sort of things you do to keep yourself on that path?
1: Yeah. So I think there's two levels to that. I think, I think for all of us, I mean, first of all, I would encourage everyone listening to this to Um, if you get a moment, maybe check out the TEDx talk that I did in Santa Barbara. I don't know if you can post it in your show notes, but at the very end, there's an exercise where you, you basically, you know, you, you, you imagine it's your last day on earth and the person who would hold your hand in those final moments is with you. Um, and you know, that person 15 years after you've passed is now having a conversation with someone who never met you and they asked about the tracks you left. Or if you said another way, the impact you left in the world, um, that is still being felt. And what would that be? What would those tracks be? What would you have that person say? I I think it is so important to write those tracks down, whatever they are. A lot of times they have nothing to do with work. Um, But like for me, it's to to make a difference from the bottom up. It's I want people to say he helped bring veterans home. I want people to say he helped return servant leadership to the country. I want people to say he helped people learn how to tell their story and find their voice. You know, those kind of things. Uh, He was a good father, a good husband. And, you know, write them down where you can see them and share them with the people you love. So share them with your, your, your wife, share them with your husband, share them with your kids, your best friend, the people that made the most to you, like share with them the tracks you want to leave in this world. Because I believe that when people know what it is you're trying to leave into, they'll help you build it, hmm. especially the people you care about the most. Like I want my boys to know why I'm doing this play. I want them to know why I have a nonprofit. It's important to me. And I want to know what, what what gets them up in the morning i want to know what fires them up what are they passionate about what do they believe in and why you know i just think that's a really important thing to do so so that would be the first thing and then i think you have to schedule moments to reflect you know you talked about like a hot wash you know you guys do similar things in law enforcement i mean there is an understanding in special forces and the broader military that after an an action or an operation, you don't even drop your weapon or gear off until you've done your after action review period. Like you, you know, you might be standing there unless it's life limb or eyesight, even if you're bleeding or whatever, you're going to be part of that after action review because we've got studies that show crystallized learning and adaptation occurs in the moment. So like if you give a speech or a talk or Like your TEDx talk, the best time to make adjustments to your TEDx talk is literally 15 minutes after you just gave that talk um, because you're in flow. You're still in the moment. So that's the second thing is there needs to be like it needs to be part of your culture, your self-culture and your, you know, and the culture of those you lead that immediately you go into a hot wash um, after you do an action, whether it was a staff meeting, uh, an important seminar, a talk, uh, you know, a baseball game your kid played in like it's just understood that before we go get ice cream before we go get beers we're doing an after action review and we're going to go over what went right what happened what went right what went wrong and what will we do ne- next time and we immediately retrain on it right then so you know that's and i think you do that with yourself you find times in the day that you do it with yourself and with your kids you know and your and the people you lead the final thing I'll say on that, Garrett, is we tend to do it the least with ourselves, mm-hmm. right? Because there's always, there's always some BS reason not to do it. And I think in that sense, you have to schedule it. I am really big on regimen. I believe that the reason that Navy SEALs are such amazing organizations is because every morning, no matter where they are, they are up at 5 a.m. swinging kettlebells, hitting the heavy bag, and sprinting as hard as they can. It doesn't matter if that's in Bagram, Afghanistan or, you know, Balad, Iraq or Baltimore on temporary duty. They're doing that. And and that regimen, that rigor, that ritual creates um, freedom and power. And so if you're going to do a hot wash on yourself, you got to schedule it like you got to if you got a big event coming, you know, do you have it worked into your schedule that you're going to do uh, a self hot wash after it's over and write it into your day? That was a long answer, man. I'm
0: sorry. No, that's fan- that's hey, That makes a good podcast because the less I talk, the more <laughs> you talk, the better it works out. You know, I think something I want to touch on, though, that in my experience, people who uh, just, I want to say just, but your you're guy who's going to work, he's a cop, he's been a cop for a while, and he's pushing that black and white, and he's got his kids, and he's got his wife, and he's got his weekend routine or whatever. But he doesn't have this thing like a platform like either of us do. You know, he's not giving talks, he's not running a podcast. They often, I think, the misperception is those things are for people like us, quote unquote. You know, who are who are trying to grow something, an entrepreneurial kind of uh, mindset or something like that. Whereas, developing a clear purpose and 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 why is is for all of us, right? Even if even yeah. if you want nothing more than to go to work and do a good job. And come home at the end of the day, you need to understand why you're going to work in the first place and what you're out there serving. Because uh, I guarantee, and I, I, this is from personal experience, if you don't have a clear understanding of what you're trying to accomplish at work that day, just for yourself, for your, your fulfillment, you're going to burn out fast.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, yeah. and and if you go to work understanding that the fact that you are coming to work is serving something bigger than yourself, serving your community, serving uh, this idea of democracy, with a civilian police force that is a much bigger broader goal that brings you to work in the morning gets you up out of bed
1: that's great man so let's break that down for a second so so first of all for those listening like you know it's it's important to understand based on what i'm about to tell you like so green berets which is what i did we're we're radically different than navy seals army rangers you know delta operators we are um I hope that didn't come through. And Man. if it did, it was just a, uh, it was just a nice pause in what I'm about to say. <laughs> that was weird. Um, but Green Berets, we are radically different in how we operate. We we simply, we look at the human terrain. We go into places that, uh, Garrett, and, and and I'll bring this home in just a second, but we go into places that are trust depleted, that are at risk, and we have to Go in with 12 guys and basically build relationships from the inside out with people we have no authority over where we are outgunned. And then we have to come out with 12,000 so that these folks can stand up on their own from the inside out and resist an oppressive government uh, and, and conduct basically an insurgency. And in doing that, we have to be experts at not only human relationships, interpersonal skills, gunslinging, but also we have to really understand the human terrain. We it's almost like, you know, it's another version of community engagement. And I know no one does community engagement better than law enforcement, like especially American law enforcement. And I, I talk to people who don't want to hear about community policing. And then there's folks who love community policing. And that's not what I'm espousing here. What I'm saying is that as Green Berets, we have to go in and we have to work by, with and through local people in local areas. That's what we do. And we do it better than anybody on the planet. And I teach this at the schoolhouse for special forces. So I teach this, this what I call the Laurentian skill set named after Lawrence of Arabia. How do you go into these trust depleted places, build relationships, move people to take action because they choose to not because they have to. I think in many ways, law enforcement must do the same thing every single day. One thing that I've learned in studying the human terrain and diving into this with anthropologists and social scientists and agriculturalists who study human behavior is this. Humans are meaning-seeking, emotional, social creatures. It doesn't matter what culture. It doesn't matter if it's L.A. or Pakistan. It doesn't matter if you're on a SWAT team or if you are a 30-year career deputy. Every single one of us as a human being is a meaning-seeking, emotional, social creature. We must have purpose in our life or we die. Our identity is more than any other mammal is rooted in purpose. If you see a society or an organization or an individual who's lost their connection to their purpose, their existence on this earth is challenged and probably not going to last very long. Um, and like Simon Sinek says, people buy what, why you do something, not what you do. Um, So purpose is huge emotional the limbic brain the mammal brain that makes all our big decisions in the moment. It doesn't even understand language. It only understands emotion Alan Weiss the million dollar business consultant says uh, logic makes people think emotion makes people act purpose is directly tied to emotion right and then social creatures we're always looking we sit at the top of the food chain based on our ability not because of fur fangs or claws but we we know how to group and form teams right and so all of those things are always at play. You think about law enforcement and you think about police officers, you think about sheriff's deputies and what all of you guys have to do day in and day out. You have to engage locals in ways that no other human being on the planet has to do. And one thing I've learned in this whole notion of purpose is that if you don't have your own purpose identified, it's going to be very hard for anyone else to feel safe around you or to follow you when the chips are down. Right. I've seen it in firefights. I've seen it in combat. If you're not clear on who you are and why you're here, people are going to smell you a mile away. So if you have to wade into these really crappy situations and the only reason you're doing it is to get a paycheck, one, that's going to be a tough existence. But two, it's going to be very hard for people to follow you. Right. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing, though, Garrett, is that the more that we can understand why the other party across from us is doing something the more apt we are to be able to negotiate with them in other words if i'm trying to understand your why in a in a high emotion situation maybe it's a domestic dispute or whatever And I just even start to ask you questions about why it's going to bring your emotional temperature down because it's validating you at a deep primal level. And when you do that, you take the other party's emotional temperature down. Hell, it's a force protection tool. So living and working around this notion of why for guys and gals in your profession, man, I'm telling you, like, if you're not doing it, you're leaving tons of potential on the table, both for yourself and the communities you serve.
0: Mm, That's that's such poignant advice and, and, and I, and I see again the correlation directly between, you know, we've, we have other special operations communities on and I keep coming back to how the green berets have such a, a a contrast or a, or a correlation, I mean, to what we do in the sense that, you know, you've got, um, and this comes from reading your book too, but then also getting to know you, which has been fascinated with this idea that army special forces soldiers your ability to survive in those high threat environments often rely as much on your ability to tell story and communicate as they do on your operational tactics and weaponry.
1: Absolutely. Uh, So absolutely. Yeah.
0: It's, can you explain how, I mean, the storytelling, how this played out for you in your career and how you learned how this, the storytelling, but then connection became part of your life saving kit.
1: Yeah. So again, I'll bring it back to, I just feel such a, to me I feel a really and maybe it's just because I have so many peers in the law enforcement community that have mentored me through the years and um we've we've exchanged best practices as we did the village stability program over in um in Afghanistan I learned a lot from law enforcement and and I was astounded at at how you all have to operate in a lot of times trust depleted high risk situations where you know you can't pull your weapon out and just sling lead every time there's a crisis or a conflict. I mean, you know, even though it's tempting and even though at times you may feel like like that's the that's the go-to thing, you know, you and I both know that that in your line of work where you're working with communities, and in my line of work where we're working with foreign communities, it cannot that cannot be the default mechanism, right? It just can't. But what I've found in my own work. And, and, and you know, for the first 10 years of the war, Garrett, all we did was sling lead. I mean, we killed we the, the special forces community was so pissed off after nine eleven that we forgot and abandoned all of our by, with and through uh, concepts unless it got us on the enemy faster. And we killed tens of thousands of both Taliban and foreign fighters. We put numbers on the board that no one has ever put on the board in Afghanistan. And guess what? By 2010? There were more rural insurgents than when we started in 01. and I'm telling you right now, as a guy who lost 23 friends in that war and who been, who's been over there long enough to vote, um, if I thought that coercion, coming off the top rope and 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 smacking some dude up against the side of his head in a bad situation was the default way to go, I'd say that. But it's not. You know, as humans, we're not wired that way. Again, we are meaning-seeking, emotional, social creatures. So the the trick is if you're going to move people to take action and you don't want them to become like a social insurgent that just waits for you to turn your back and bury something in between your shoulder blades, then learning how to connect with people and move people of their own volition is a huge strategic skill, both for Green Berets, law enforcement. Hell, it's a it's a skill for anyone, but I think much more so for folks like you guys. And so, okay, then what does that mean? Well, to me. What that means is then I want to understand human dynamics. I want to understand not just the human terrain and how it lays out like a topographic map because it does, but also how are humans generally wired to interact with each other? What can we learn about you know, basic human behavior that tells us things that most people today aren't even paying attention to? One of them is um, – below the surface, right? Humans are story animals. We, the number one form of communication and connection in the world is storytelling that a lot of times because the word story and like reading to your kids at night and stuff like that, it has like this soft skill annotation. Like it's not, you know, it's story time. Mm -hmm. That's not what we're talking about here. I'm talking about purposeful storytelling, uh, as a means of communicating with other human beings. And what we know is that storytelling or the use of narrative, or if you like, if you want to get all technical narrative competence, is the best way to bridge trust gaps, to get ideas into other people's heads, to plant things that they'll remember. And it's the best way to listen to high stakes situations in a neighborhood or a domestic or whatever, where you're getting is to is to ask questions that let them tell you a story. Um, why is that? Because we've been telling stories for 100,000 years Because the human brain, according to Kendall Haven in his book, story proof actually tells itself a story before it uses logic before the frontal cortex is even activated. The there's a, there's a make sense mandate in every human listener that says, I need to make sense of what I'm hearing right now. So I'm going to tell myself a story and the only way, and normally what happens is, so like, let's say, let's say you come to my house to investigate a call and I'm upset. I'm excited. Um, and you're trying to explain to me, you know, or I'm trying to explain to you what's going on, but I'm just like being, you know, really standoffish. I'm not very communicative. You know, you're going to form your own story in your head about what's going on, mm-hmm. your own perceptions, your own narrative. And two things are going to happen. One, it's not going to be accurate, probably, because it's you're just using it to fill the gaps. And two, it's probably going to piss you off a little bit at a semi-conscious level that you had to form this story instead of getting it from me. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same way if you sit down in a briefing at at, at, at work and you get a 50 slide PowerPoint deck, it kind of ticks you off because you're like, dude, just tell me the story. Um, well, the only way to really reach someone, if you want to plant an idea in their brain, is to plant that idea in the vehicle of a story. So if the same situation were there and I told you a story about what happened and what happened between my wife and me or why there was this no and it was in the form of a narrative, then that story is going to pass right into your brain and that will be what you use to process that information, not your own story. Mm-hmm. And so the ideas that I need to get across to you are much better conveyed if I do it through the form of a story. And it doesn't matter if you're talking to your boss, to your teenager about coming home on time uh, or to someone in the community. If you can convey your idea in a story, it's going to be 10 times more likely to resonate with the listener than if you just talk at them or give them a bunch of facts or poke them in the chest and say, because I said so.
0: I see that too uh, on a, on an agency wide level, you know, we're talking about individual officers here, but also agencies in our challenge. And our but also our a real need to tell our agency's story and then the whole yeah. the broader story of law enforcement and why we're here in the first place you know and I like how you said that if I don't tell my story, you fill in the gaps uh, and, and you you fill in your story, and it's probably not going to be the story I want you to believe and I, and I think that's so common with us in law enforcement we're reticent to speak out, and sometimes we can't because investigations are ongoing or whatever, but we miss constant opportunities to connect with people by telling a story about our objectives, our mission, our values, the things we believe in, what we're doing to make the community safer. And then as a result, we end up with protests and misinformation and yeah. rumor mills because we didn't take the chance to, to tell our story first and we let you fill in the gaps.
1: Exactly. And, and the promise is if you don't tell your story as an organization, I promise you someone is going to tell it for you. Mm -hmm. Someone's going to tell it for you. You're probably not going to like who tells it. You're probably not going to like how they tell it. And guess what? It's too late. Mm -hmm. It's not too late, but you're already way behind the curve because now you are reacting to their narrative that they've put out there. And in this day and age where the attention span is eight seconds in the average civilian, that's one second less than a goldfish. Um, it's not going to matter because the the first narrative that gets out wins. And I and I tell law enforcement and military folks this all the time. If you are waiting or you are holding back on telling your organizational story, you are going to lose the battle of the narrative. And if you want to see how the battle of the narrative goes, look at ISIS. Like they were masters of it. Gangs are ba- masters of narrative. Uh, prisons. I mean, that ne- it is as old as time itself. But for some reason. Law enforcement and special ops in particular, we are loathe to put our narrative out in front of what we're doing, and we always end up responding. I'll give you an example in my world, and I'm getting ready to start going on CNN and Fox about it because I want to get in front of it. Um, Right now, we have a narrative emerging in the special operations and larger DOD world and even in Congress that special ops are – Making morally deficit decisions that we are um, rogue, that we are out of control, that we are, you know, our suicide rate is three times higher than last year. And within that narrative, there are some elements of alarming indicators. Mm -hmm. But the narrative that has come out of it is special ops is out of control. Mm -hmm. That's not that's not not only is that an unfair narrative, it's not accurate. Um, You know, the larger narrative is. Okay, Congress, Thank you so much for you know investigating our ethics because God knows there's no one more legitimate to do that than you <laughs> right? I don't think that was my inner monologue, but you know what's the deeper problem here? How about the fact that you've deployed the special operations community less than one half of one half of one half percent of the American population for eighteen straight years right? Yeah. Every problem that comes up in the world under three presidential administrations, the first thing you do is send in seals and green berets right and it's the same people that keep going so like what about that narrative like where's the responsibility to care for the force and after 18 20 years yeah there's going to be some bad decisions made there's going to be marriages broken there's going to be all that stuff mm-hmm. but where you know what i mean mm-hmm. so there's another narrative here but the special operations community right now is not responding with anything mm-hmm. and so guess what narrative is going to carry the day and and i think that's true in your world as well Absolutely. i would encourage any leader in law enforcement, to always look at the organizational narrative that you're putting forward, especially in the eyes of your community and your citizens.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's, you know, for, for, for both of us, well, you, for you, the person who might fill in that narrative, if you don't do it sounds like, you know, could very well be Congress uh, for us, it's the media, right? yeah. like if they instantly will take it. And and every cop knows how accurate the media is on every occasion. Um And, I, but I often, I often put the blame on ourselves. You know, because because we like you said, we let them tell the story without presenting our our side of it or or our story and left to their own devices. They're going to choose the most salacious, the most inflammatory, because that's what gets the ratings. If we can tell our story, which is obviously, well, hopefully the truth, we can we can prevent a lot of that.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, again, I. I I'll I'll leave it to you and the other leaders in your community to sort this out. But, you know, I will tell you in our community, a lot of it is what is the story that we're telling ourselves, first of all, mm-hmm. as an organization, internally down and in. What's the story we're telling ourselves? For example, in special forces right now, and I don't think I'm talking out of school. I think you guys can probably relate to it. We're a house divided right now. We are divided along this notion of are we door kickers or are we Lawrence of Arabia? Mm. Right. That's a, that's, that's a, um, that's a conflict that's going on right now in our community. And, you know, both are very, very strong arguments, but, you know, I tend to fall down on the, we are the Lawrence of Arabia. We are the relationship builders. We are the strategic connectors. Yes, we can kick doors, but it is not, we are not Delta force, right? We are not. Um, and, and I think that we've got to get that story straight with ourselves first, Mm. right? And I will just tell you as a as a as a story coach, when I look at law enforcement these days, I see a similar incongruous narrative within law enforcement where I hear, okay, no, we're about the community. We're about the community. And then I look around and I see guys that are normal, you know, beat cops dressed like SEAL Team Six, you know, and I'm just being real Mm -hmm. like I'm not I'm not calling it right or wrong but that is a narrative problem, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, and so how do you wrestle with that? I'm not sure, but those are things that not only do you have to figure out the story you tell the world, but what's the story we're telling ourselves? Who are we? And it's hard, but it's necessary, especially for what you guys do and what we do.
0: Oh, it's, that is such a, it is, you're so dead on with that comparison and what's going on, I think right now. And, and you guy got guys wanting to be door kickers, wanting to be the operators, and then guys who and girls and women, of course, who you know see the the skill set, uh, the softer skills. I guess the challenge too is you know, I guess I'd say if you're if there's such a thing as lucky in this scenario, at least the at least the Green Berets are one unit nationwide, right? It's it's the same yeah. command, it's the same people, it comes from one top down. We have tens of thousands of different agencies around the country, each with their own ethos, each with their own mindset, each with where either the operator or the, uh, you know, what a massive, (laughs) it's never going to get solved on a national level. Uh, I think in, in in policing anyway, but I see that and it, and it comes from the top, uh, and, and the, the, um, the values of what, you know, the people in charge are, are sending down and what they value. Yeah.
1: So yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off.
0: No, no. I was just, I'm just relating to that. Like that's absolutely a divide that I see as well. And, and I, and I fall, I, I don't say fall victim, but I, I straddle that line myself, you know, cause yeah. to be frank, kicking doors can be fun. Yeah. <laughs> and, and necessary. And necessary. And it's, yeah. it's what sets you apart from the mundane, uh, other, ideas about life or the like, I'm not an, I always pick on accountants, but it's, it's like to me, the most horrible job I can think of is running numbers and sitting behind a desk like that all day. So, yeah. So, so just, you know, it's, it's enticing, it's inviting, it's exciting, it's necessary. It is that of course, probably there's an element of hyper masculinity to it too, but there's a time and place. There's no doubt about that. We all need, we all need those times and places, but we need to be able to pull it back and use those other skills as well. And I don't think anyone would disagree with the fact that we can't be operator all the time and we can't be quote unquote Lorenzian all the time either. We need to be able to straddle, but that story we're telling people, I think you need to work within the context of the story you're telling. Does that make sense? Like, like if you're telling the people of your community that we are, uh, Communicators, we are relationship builders, but you're kicking doors and that's the attitude you bring to every contact. That's not going to work. You're not in congruence going back to this whole question of congruency. uh, It has to be congruent. So what are the things you think though that, you know, someone like me who's, you know, I think you'll agree with this statement that leadership is not a rank, right? It's a mindset. Um, It's uh, but for people who want to continue to develop their leadership skills and work up and down the chain, within their chain to tell this story, how do they connect and use story within their own departments uh, to, this is a selfish question. How do we use story to tell our story, but also tell the agency story up and down the chain to get buy-in on this?
1: Yeah, man, that's a good question. So, all right, let's, let's come at it this way. Um, the first thing is, I, you know, I, I, I don't want to selflessly promote my own book, but there are some parts of the book that I think would really uh, inform this discussion. In mm-hmm. uh, Game Changers, Going Local to Defeat Violent Extremists, you know, there, there is a section in there about this divide that we're talking about mm-hmm. um, and how that shows up when you have to deal with communities. And um, it's called Finding Lawrence. And I think it would be helpful uh, and I'm going to bring it to the story question in just a second. But sure. you know, as I think about, you know, a law enforcement guy or gal out there who's who's looking at this problem set, going, okay, yeah, but what about where I live, where you know it's friggin' dangerous, and you know, you, you you've got to. You've got to operate at the highest level. And I get that. Mm-hmm. Like, I totally do. Right, right. But what I tell folks to maybe think about is, maybe think about it this way. I Because I, I think the analogy is very similar to law enforcement. I believe today's Green Beret and I believe today's law enforcement uh, leader needs to be a combination of three people. Jason Bourne, Lawrence of Arabia, and the Verizon guy. Or the sprint guy or whatever the hell he's called these days, right? So three areas. I think Mm -hmm. that we need to be surgically lethal. We need to be highly proficient in coercion when necessary. And we need to be able to flick that switch in a heartbeat. I mean, like, you know, we've got to be able to go lethal or to whatever level of, you know, uh, coercion is necessary literally in a nanosecond, which means – if you think about it, that implies even harder training. It's one thing to to get in a stack going into a house and have your breacher up front and know that, frankly, that's all we're doing today is direct action, right? It's a complete different thing to be in a conversation with a grandparent in a neighborhood and then all of a sudden have to flick the switch and just go high order at a very surgical level, right? And so I think even the training implications of of lethality and coercion need to be refined to such that we can apply it at the turn of a switch and with immense surgicality Hmm. um and and then turn it right back off right so so that jason Bourne, when i think about this is a guy like yeah he was a movie character but when he was on the run if you watch him he's very surgical in the application of his lethality right if if there's three police officers that are getting in the way of him and his next move you know he's probably gonna break a few fingers Right But he's not going to blow up the whole police station. he's going to be very surgical in the application of what needs to be done, very proportional, and that's it and I think that's a whole that is a whole different character set for how we apply force and coercion. The Lawrence of Arabia, what I mean by that is because we're meaning seeking emotional social creatures, eighty to ninety percent of our day, whether we like it or not, whether it feels good or not, is dealt making human connections. Um, And if we're going to be effective and if we're going to be influential, both in our work and with our higher headquarters, with adjacent agencies, with our kids or certainly with communities, we've got to be better at human connection than anyone around us, which means we got to be great active listeners, which means we have to be physically present, intentional and available when we're when we're engaged. And we have to be really good at storytelling, uh, communicating ideas through narrative in a way that connects people. So those are areas I would tell people to train on. And then finally, we have to be um, that, that Verizon guy. If you ever see the old commercials, can you hear me now? Good. Mm-hmm. He's in the jungle. Can you hear me now? Good. He's, now he's in the mountains. Can you hear me now? He's constantly moving from place to place, connecting people around a problem set. I think today's law enforcement leader and special operations leader, who is the most relevant person in the room, is the one who understands the complex problems they face. Like, for example, our narrative is jacked. And we've got to get in front of it and can run the seams from top to bottom sideways. One minute they're in the community, the next minute they're in the chief's office and they have the articulation and narrative competence to connect people around that problem from all walks of life and unify them around this bigger problem and move them toward action. And man, is that hard? Mm. But if you can do that, it's a phenomenal skill set. It's not for everybody, but I think in today's age, where, you know, a CNN moment can happen with one swing of the baton or one, you know, concussion grenade going in the wrong direction. You're on CNN, you have to be that connector that can build these tribes and networks around complex problems. Can you build A tribe in a neighborhood that is divided along ethnic lines can you build a tribe within three agencies that can't even sit at the same table without pulling their knives out you know can you build a tribe within your own team where three people are practicing in-group out-group behavior because of old biases like whatever um you know can you be that person that bridges the trust gaps bridges the trust gaps because trust gaps are everywhere around us um so those three avatars Garrett, mm-hmm. I think, and combined where the, each of them shows up in the moment the way they need to, I think is a very relevant avatar for today's law enforcement. It, mm. Because if you think about what you all have to do and what green berets have to do, they're very similar in by, with, and through local people.
0: You know, one of the things that strikes me about that is that, um, you know, a lot of quote unquote leaders, they want authority, but leadership is not really about authority. It's about being authentic. Yeah. and to tell the story and to get by and you have to be authentic and you know you're Scott you truly are one of the most authentic people i know and okay. you've you've been working on your own progression uh since since you know transitioning out of the military and you mentioned the play and i want to touch on that but you know the the is it possible to teach authenticity to people or is it just words of encouragement? Uh, how how do, cause you're an authentic yeah. guy. How do you do it?
1: So one of the biggest questions that I asked myself when I came out of special forces, because I wanted to share these skills with my children and I wanted to share them with other servant leaders was, you know, in the Q course, we are graded and evaluated on our instinctual ability to establish rapport. And that's so stated in our manuals, mm-hmm. but you know, okay, that's great, but you can't teach instinct. You can't really, I mean, is it even fair to grade someone on instinct, right? Can instinct can, can rapport interpersonal skill sets, human connection. Can that be trained? And and my answer is it absolutely can. Hmm. You absolutely can train on this stuff. And it is whether it is storytelling, active listening, uh, making better connections, negotiate, you name it. All of it is both art and science. And for years, we have defaulted into like either you're good at it or you're not right. And if you're not, then I guess I just got to beat people upside the head. But the reality is that's just not true. I mean, there's a whole body of evidence and science now on how to train in these arenas. And, um, my, my website, actually it's all free rooftopleadership.com. I'm constantly doing video blogs on this every week about how to get better at it. And so that's the first thing I would say now to your question about authenticity, you know, first of all, remember we are meaning seeking, emotional, social creatures. So, what does that mean? This, let's take the social part for a minute. As a human being, unless I'm a sociopath, I'm always looking for who I can connect with and team with to gain more resources, to protect the resources I have, and to maintain my honor in front of my clan. That is a primal. Uh, biological requirement that is still in my body just as it was 250,000 years ago. So I'm always semi-consciously looking for who I can connect with. So are the people across from you. So, for example, if you, we know uh, because we've measured brain activity when we've done storytelling and interpersonal connection, if you, for example, talk about uh, to your kids, like maybe your kids are going down the wrong path, like I've had some issues um, at times with some of my boys that I've had to like call them out rather than lecture them on what they should be doing, I talk about some of the struggles I went through as a teenager and some of the things that happened to me as a result of it. And it's not comfortable. It's very uncomfortable to talk about. But when I do that, when we talk about the struggles we go through and the things that scuffed us up in our life, it actually makes us much more relatable to the people listening. Because remember, we're always looking for uh, the people we can connect with. And you're right, authenticity – is what we look for in people. But, but what is authenticity? It's nothing more than relatability and what is relatability? It's a person who's willing to share his or her struggles in the service of others.
0: Mm, I like that definition of it. Now I want to transition a little bit. Um, I've been getting a lot of emails recently from people who've just, uh, discovered the show and they're going way back to episode one. Right. Uh, and, and where I talk about, my struggles, and, and my, that's my first attempts to be truly authentic about where I kind of bounced off rock bottom with my you know mind, body and spirit, and I was you know trying to navigate all those things, and that's why the whole show started. And I'm, I'm sharing with them that journey, and then um, mm-hmm. that they need to make a change. Um, and I always tell them, and I implore them to make a decision and then just decide to be one day stronger tomorrow. Yeah. And, Love that. Y- you know, you've got a, you you know, in the military, but you, you, you have a story about the, uh, the, the mission decision line. Yeah. And I, I relate that sometimes when I think, and I'm talking to these people, I think back to you telling that story and about how they just need to make that MDL decision. So I, I was hoping you could share that.
1: Yeah. I mean, a lot of times I come across leaders who, who feel like, you know, they look at the other leaders around them or the people above them. And they're like, you know, I could never do that. You know, I could never achieve that. That person's lucky or that person's gifted or that person got all the breaks, whatever. And I've had people say that to me. And, and that's where that story came from. The mission decision line or the MDL was, you know, Hey, you, you never have to, you know, you, you've never had to Um, go through that. You're a Green Beret. You've been trained for all this. You don't know what it's like to feel the self-doubt, the, you know, the, the, the self-consciousness. And I just laughed and I'm like, you, trust me, you know, every single time, you know, I do something in front of people, I feel that. But certainly when I was a commander in special forces, I felt that all the time. And, and, you know, when I was my first ground mission in Afghanistan, I was a task force commander going into a place that was So remote that the locals there thought the Soviets were still in the country. And we were going in there with like 50 Green Berets and about 250 uh, freshly trained Afghan National Army soldiers who were no more than 14 years old. They'd never heard the crack of a round in combat. And we were going into an area literally that was the home of Mullah Omar. And we knew that it was going to be a buzzsaw the second that we landed. We were going in with a massive formation um, and only about, you know, 10 Green Berets per group of 50 uh, max. Um, We knew we were going to be hit as soon as we landed. Seven different landing zones. So the force was split across seven directions with almost no close air support. It was all going to be, you know, organic. And so, you know, and I'm the task force commander with seven maneuver units, most of them foreign national. And I can remember as we walked to the airfield with all the rotors turning and, you know, trying to have our little top gun moment as we're carrying all our gear and looking cool, you know, and I'm trying to look cool on the surface because I'm walking amongst these real heroes here. These giants, these non-commissioned officers who have fought for years in places like Colombia, El Salvador, Panama, and 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 like I'm trying – I got to lead these guys, right, and – and so I'm just trying to give off this persona that I'm as cool and collected as they are. But inside, man, like my gut is churning. We get on the aircraft. Um, we start doing call checks. I've got, you know, a headset on. Everybody else does. And we start to lift off. And I mean, I literally feel like I'm going to throw up. You know, I mean, I'm so nervous. And it's nighttime and it's it's doors are open. And, you know, we're sitting in the chopper with our legs hanging out. And I can just remember just like literally thinking, what's going to happen if we hit the ground And we start taking fire. What's going to happen if we start taking casualties? What are my emergency frequencies? What the hell am I doing here? You know, why did I, why am I leading this mission? There was so much self-doubt coursing through my body. And as we were doing that, I finally thought, okay, I got to do something to take my mind off of it because it was seriously getting in under my skin. So I pulled my map out with all of our phase lines on it. Now, phase lines as you're flying are just linear features like roads, valleys, terrain features that allow you to see where you are on the ground and on the map. And so as we're crossing each phase line, the pilots are calling off phase line, uh, Tampa, phase line, Arizona. And then, you know, they'll call back from the headquarters, Roger, phase line, Arizona. So the headquarters all the way back to Tampa are tracking us on this mission. We're little blips moving across the map and, you know, and I'm sitting there listening to that. And then when they get to phase line, North Carolina, like something just happened to me. Something felt different. And I realized that that phase line they had just called was what we call the mission decision line. It's the MDL. And and what that is, is that when you cross that line, it is the point of no return. There is no longer an abort. Uh, up until that point, you can get pulled back. And we did several times for this mission. It's kind of like a, a a delayed launch from, you know, like Cape Canaveral. Um, But now we had crossed this thing and like everybody acknowledged that we had crossed the MDL. And as soon as we did that, I realized like, that's it. You know, we're not turning back. Even if half our ships go down or we lose a fourth of our formation, we're going to Charlie Mike this mission. We're going to continue. And I actually felt better. I mean, I actually felt a sense of relief. The churning in my stomach was gone. The dryness in my mouth was gone. I just felt like this sense of peace. And I thought, okay, I am totally losing my damn mind here. I mean, I should be worse. So I kind of looked around a little bit for some external validation and I look in the chopper and like all my boys in there, all I can see because we're blacked out faces and everything are these teeth, just everyone in there grinning from ear to ear because they had just heard the same phase line and they knew that we were going. They knew that all the months of preparation for this mission set, all the delays and cancellations, we were finally going and whatever was waiting for us up that those mountains tonight, like we were going in together and we, we were going in with everything we had. And it was just this sense of just, again, it was like a relief. There was no plan B. There was just full on commitment to the task at hand. And I think, you know, I think that's necessary for all of us because we're constantly facing these challenges and battles that are bigger than we are. And we wonder, am I good enough? Can I do this? And you know, I tell my boys all the time, look, figure out that line in time or space or wherever it is between where you are and where you want to be and make that your MDL, right? And you can bitch and moan and cry and whatever you want to do until you cross that thing. But when you cross it, suck it up, lean in and go because it's mission time. And there's no looking back until your mission complete. And I've found that's just a really cool way to deal with you know, daunting tasks and things that are in front of us is to declare our own MDL. Mm,
0: I love that story so much. And I love the, the message of it. Thank you. You know, you, you recently too have taken on, we just touched on it a minute ago, but you know, rather than just sit back and use the skills that you've developed, you mm-hmm. are, are still leaning into new experiences and you wrote this play <laughs> yeah, that you are now performing. And mm-hmm. um we've already covered that you are uh, not a professional actor. I mean not until this point anyway, you are now because right. you're doing this play, but what was it about going off in, in, into something that is so different than your perceived, you know, professional skill set? What what was the draw there?
1: Well, I've always believed in doing things that scare me. Mm-hmm. I found that especially when you know when I got out of special forces, Garrett, the first two years were really dark. I lost my identity. I think it happens to law enforcement when we leave. I think it happens to operators when we leave. And I had lost my identity. And I was, I didn't think I was going to make it out of it. You know, I I was afraid that I was going to check out. And, you know, I really found myself again through storytelling and sharing my story with others and, and getting on the stage and, and just talking about my buddies that were gone and lessons that I'd learned. And I just fell in love with storytelling and I found my voice again. And by finding my voice, I mean, I was as fully expressed when I was on the stage talking about life in special forces as I was when I was in it, maybe Mm. more Mm. because I felt like I was honoring those that had served. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, and I don't know if you've ever seen the movie 300, but there's the one guy, uh, who, who walks back from, you know, Leonidas sends him home because his eye is injured, but he sends him home to tell the story to the rest of Greece to mobilize them against the Persians. And, that's what I feel like when I'm storytelling. I feel like I am telling the story strategically for those that don't have a voice. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, I just talked about the false narrative that's going on with our community right now. And I felt like, you know what, the, the world always hears these stories about the first end. They always hear about the Navy SEALs kicking the door in, the small team of Green Berets that went in, you know, uh, 12 strong. But the, we never hear about the last out. We never hear about those men and women who keep going back year after year after year after year. I mean, I've got friends that have 12, 13 deployments. I mean, I had four in Afghanistan alone and we never hear about, and it's the same men and women that keep going. And, you know, our families are devastated. Our, our our spouses are so overstressed and have their own trauma. And like we never hear that story. Yet we see these politicians all the time bragging and touting the power of the U.S. military and how our special operations can be thrown at any problem. And I just thought, you know, I'm kind of tired of this. Like I want people to really see it's not an anti-war play, but I want them to see I want to lift the tent up and I want to show them for 85 minutes what it's like to go to war for 20 years. Mm -hmm. And so I selected a character that was based on three of my team sergeants who have fallen. And his name is Danny Patton. He's a team sergeant in green berets. And the name of the play is last out elegy of a green beret. And the play is about Danny dies in the first scene. He's on his like 10th tour in Afghanistan and he's almost retired and he's killed and he wants to know peace. He wants to rest after a life of war and he's trying to go to the warrior resting place of Valhalla except that there's something he's holding on to that he can't let go of. And so his buddies come down from Valhalla and they take him back through his life and explore all of the things that happened to him so that he can find out what he's letting go of, what he's holding on to and let go and finally know peace. And in doing that, the audience is taken through the entire journey from the time he joined special forces, nine 11, multiple deployments, marrying his wife, having his son, his son telling him that he's joining up, all of that. Mm. And and they get to see, they earn their damn seats. They At the end of 85 minutes, you feel like you've been to combat with Danny mm. multiple times, and you have an emotional appreciation for what it is to fight this long war. And that's why I did it. And it, the cool thing is, Garrett, is it's told by, I'm in it, uh, but the other actor's are combat veterans and so it's a story about war told by those who fought it and then we have our director and uh the one who plays my wife is a seasoned actor out of orlando actress out of orlando and comes from a military family so all the music is veteran like it is super powerful and we're taking it all over the country it's gaining traction veterans are loving it law enforcement loves it we're coming to santa barbara in january um so yeah it's really taken off and it's 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 just it fills my cup man
0: You know, I, it's such an impressive feat, you know, to, to not only pivot your skills into something like that, but then to be moved into telling that story. And it's a story I think any law enforcement officer with time on can understand, you know, just actually just last night, my wife and I were talking about the last 12, well, 13 years, you know, and I just, I just Mm -hmm. came off off rotating shifts and patrol for the first time ever. I've been on rotating shifts and, and wow. patrol work for my entire career. Mostly. I mean, a few short monthly assignments, but really for 13 years and how, you know, some people, you get that question. If you, if you could do it all over again, would you? And uh, my answer is most certainly yes. But my wife was, is an absolute no, you know, right? Because for her, she doesn't, I always say that law enforcement is a two person job. If you've got a family Putting one cop on the street requires a person behind you to run the house, not only run the house, but, you know, in in most areas, in many areas, the wife is working as well and uh, have their own desires and ambitions. But for me to go out and be a patrol officer on a weekend night makes my wife a single mother for half a yeah. week. Right. And to honor that and to understand that and this is not something I understood when I was new, I'm trying to tell this to new people now who are married, like especially, but like you got to respect and honor the service they're giving, uh, in, in service of your job. And you're able to go fulfill your purpose and your why by going out and serving the community and, and doing something bigger than yourself. But you have to make sure your wife understands that, or your, or your husband that, that they're serving as well. You know, just unfortunately they're serving in a position where they're not, they don't get to carry a badge and a gun and drive a car real fast they're all behind the scenes, but they are absolutely serving it right along with you. And, and, and honoring that, I think, um, is, is, is really, is really awesome, man. I, I'm so impressed that you're willing to go out there and do that and just put yourself out there like that. So,
1: yeah, it is, it is really, uh, it's daunting. It scares the hell out of me every time I do it, Garrett. And it's required just a lot of really unusual training to do it. I I would encourage any of your listeners, if you get a chance, come see it. Like you could, you know, if you're wondering like, what does he mean by put himself out there? Like, just come see the play and you'll see what I'm talking about. And I think the more we can do what scares us in life, the more we live a life fulfilled. Hmm. Uh and the last thing I'll just say about the play, and by the way, if you go to lastoutplay.com, you can see all the tour stops and dates and and things. And um, but I love the fact that we're telling the story of the military family, um, where they are really becoming the hero in this story. Now that was, I guess, sort of my intention, but it's really taken its own level of power now and it's i'm so excited to see the kids of our military warriors and the spouses when they come to the play and just how validated they are as they mm. sit there in the audience grin and ear to ear and sing their story finally told and um yeah it means a lot and and i will do it until i just can't do it anymore because i, I love i love storytelling
0: mm. that's fantastic a great spot to end on scott where can people you've mentioned a couple things but where can people learn more about you and find out more about what you're up to
1: Yeah, look, go to rooftopleadership.com for sure. And if you go to the blog section, there's like 50 some video blogs. If Mm -hmm. any of the stuff we talked about today interests you, like there's really cool buy the fire pit videos on that. And I would encourage you to go there and I do, I do them every week, just sign up. And that's the only things I really send out. I'm not going to send you any junk or anything. I mean, like, it's just really useful content on this kind of stuff for leaders like you. The other place that I would love to see you go, I don't want to give too many websites, but is lastoutplay.com. Our nonprofit, The Hero's Journey, is putting this play on. Um, but if you go to lastoutplay.com and you just like click media, you'll see all short videos of what we're doing and it will, it will blow you away. Um, and, and also our tour schedule is there. I think that would be where I leave it. Um, and then maybe if folks, you know, while you're on my website, if you, if you want to get a book that really relates to your world, I think, uh, game changers that I wrote about Afghanistan and us working in those communities would give you some good insights into some of the challenges that I think you guys face.
0: Yeah, I'll post links to all of those in the show notes and everything else uh, that you're doing. Cool. Scott, always, uh, always wonderful to connect with you, spend time with you. I leave every conversation we have feeling inspired to go out and make those connections and work harder on my own storytelling to, to make sure that uh, I'm doing my part. So thanks for your time today.
1: Thank you so much, Garrett. I appreciate it, man. Thanks for what you do.
0: You know, in listening to this episode with Scott, I I came back so many times to badges and how so much of what Scott talks about aligns with badges, our beliefs, actions, discipline, goals, emotions, and service. And how to Scott, the driving force in his life is service, serving others, and serving something bigger than yourself, and how in doing so, he... Protects and and builds a foundation for his own legacy, and the, for that of his kids. But he gets more out of that, and his beliefs, and his actions, uh, in he, every in his discipline, all drive towards serving others. And as a result of that, his ability to deal with the emotions and the negativity of the combat that he's seen, losing men and women, has given his life a purpose. That he's able to funnel that energy into something so positive when it could go so negative. So uh, if you like what you heard today from Scott, if you got something out of this conversation, please do uh, a couple different things. One, consider leaving a review on the podcast player of your choice. Uh, second, share this episode or any other episode uh, you loved with people you know need to hear it. You can go right to our website and email or Facebook or Twitter the page of uh, the episode right to people or share it on your own social media accounts. Uh, you can do that right from our page, the squadroom.net and from most podcast players. If you heard something today, you know, a friend or loved one needs to hear. Tell them about the show. You can email the link uh, directly to them. Talk to them about it. Do something like that. If you're shopping at Ranger Up and you like their t-shirts, don't forget to use that code the Squadroom" to get 10% off your order. And another way to support us is if you're looking for the best fitting ballistic helmet that exceeds NIJ standards and won't break the be- break the bank, check out hardheadveterans.com and use the coupon code squadroom to get $20 off your helmet. I have a, a, a hardhead veterans tack helmet for myself and I absolutely love it. I've tried several different ones. I've tried the ones that are over a $1,000, over $1,500, the, the hardhead veterans helmet is on par with all of those really happy with it. And they have been very good supporters of the show to keep up to date. Of course, you can text the squad room, all one word to four, four, two, two, two to get signed up for our mailing list directly from your phone. And uh, look at joining our Facebook group. If you're on Facebook, just search out the squad room podcast group and you can join there. We have some discussions and help each other out and share some tips and tricks about how to be more successful in our daily lives. All right. Until next time, take care of each other and stay safe.